0: Welcome, everyone, to another regularly scheduled rerun. I've been working on a couple of upcoming episodes this week that focus on a couple of widespread emotions that are playing an outsized role in our current politics and culture. So when I look back in the archives for a rerun episode, I found this old one focusing on a different emotion, but I thought it might act as a a good lead-in. So today we're going to hear an episode from August of last year, with a focus on anger. As for members, they got a new bonus episode in their feed today, and I'm pretty excited about it. You may have heard the idea that there are no original ideas under the sun, but this is one of those rare cases where I think I may have had an original idea that attempts to explain a couple of seemingly unrelated aspects of society and gives me, at least, some hope for the future of much greater political involvement from average citizens than we've been used to over the past several decades. Plus, I also take a stab at explaining why it is that the conservative movement was able to sustain a multi decade campaign to take over the Supreme Court, and similarly, why that actually gives me some hope for the future. So to hear all of that, and for access to our past and future members' episodes, and of course, to support the work that goes into this show, sign up as a member at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy.
1: People aspiring for a better life or feeling themselves blocked, feeling their social mobility blocked, have started to make very unwise political choices.
0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a dollar a month or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from This is Hell, Ideas from the CBC, The Tom Hartman Program, PBS Frontline, and a TED Talk.
2: You write that there is much dispute about the causes of this global disorder. We are speaking with Pankaj Mishra. He is the author of the new book, age of anger, a history of the present. you write right, there is uh, much dispute about the causes of this global disorder. Many observers have characterized it as this backlash against, backlash against an out-of-touch establishment, explaining Trump's victory, in the words of Thomas Piketty, as primarily due to the explosion in economic and geographic inequality in the United States. But you also quote Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman, admitting on the night of Trump's victory that people like me, and probably like most readers of the New York Times, truly didn't understand the country. We we live in. You add since the twin shocks of Brexit and the U.S. election, we have argued ineffectually about their causes while watching aghast as the new representatives of the downtrodden and the left behind, Trump and Nigel Farage, uh, posing in a gold-plated lift, strut across a bewilderingly expanded theater of political absurdism. To you, what explains the ineffectual nature of the arguments over the causes of the U.S. election and Brexit? Isn't the cause? Neoliberalism—that at least here in the U.S., the Democratic Party's embrace of neoliberalism, essentially turning their backs on labor organizing and the working class—isn't it that that simple? And if it is that simple, why is it so hard for the left to realize that?
3: Well, I think uh, you know, neoliberalism is a creed, as I was saying, has that has been embraced by all kinds of people, including people who used to be on the left. And one of the uh, essential principles of this of this 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 particular uh, way of thinking of human society or the good life is that human beings are primarily motivated by economic self-interest. Uh, so if you uh, basically satisfy that particular self-interest, uh, you know you you have the makings, you have the ingredients for a relatively harmonious society. Now this is a this is really a big problem because what you're essentially saying is that we you know need uh, better redistribution. We need the benefits of economic growth to be um, distributed much, much more uh, um, fairly and and, and evenly. But what it basically excludes this particular economic perspective is the actual experiences of human beings whose lives have been basically deeply, deeply disrupted by very opaque, economic, political forces, people being laid off, jobs disappearing. Um, And, you know, what you're basically offering to them is like, oh, we're just going to redistribute the economic benefits. You know, this is simply not enough. I think you have to take into account and trade unions that you mentioned, labor organizations, they were simply not there to advance economic interests. They were also there to provide community, solidarity, identity to a whole lot of people who feel completely bereft without those. So this idea that we're all here in this planet, in this world, we are born to pursue our economic self-interest, really completely uh, ignores all the other reasons for which we live, which make, which make us happy, which make us sad. And, you know, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that we have catastrophically neglected all these other emotions that are also important but the, the search for dignity, the search for honor, the search for solidarity. When people lose their jobs, they not only lose a source of income, they lose their identity, they lose their they lose their face in the wider community. And these are devastating psychological shocks. And and I, think, I just think the left has not really been cognizant of these problems. And but as I also argue, we barely have a left. You know, uh, this is a this is a left that has no time for all the forms of solidarity, this is a left that is very much committed, has been committed to the neoliberal project with a bit of, you know, social welfarism on, on the side.
2: When it comes to this idea that we are homo economicus, that we are constantly working in our own best self-interest, uh, do we need to completely rethink our world if we believe in that concept? Did we get some basic concept about our understanding of the world completely wrong? Is this the big truth that we truly believed in that in the end is false?
3: And look, um, you know, this is this critique is nothing new. Let me the, be the first to admit it. That what I say in my book is nothing new. This critique of uh, hyper-rationalism, uh, this critique of conceiving of human beings as primarily economic, self-interested animals, uh, is almost as old as modernity itself, as the modern world itself. And it has been formulated, advanced by any number of thinkers, writers, philosophers, uh, sociologists, historians over the last uh, uh, century and a half. You know, even someone like John Stuart Mill, who is often very wrongly uh, seen as his sort of father of, of, of liberalism, he was very, very, very alert to just how this emphasis on calculating reason. Was a hugely destructive force, uh, and and how it basically alienated human beings. It it sort of it 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 it, it became uh, a huge source of oppression for human beings, and that was something to be resisted. Uh, so we've we've forgotten a lot of the most important lessons of our literature and philosophy over the last two hundred years, and uh, forgotten them, and, and and sort of all plunged into this pursuit of wealth, of prosperity, of status, and that those, are the, those are the pursuits, those are the fantasies, fantasies that have been offered to us universally in the last three decades. And what you see now are people frustrated by their inability to realize those promises and lashing out. At, often at, at people they hold responsible, uh, whether rightly or not, for these failures, and you know, one of their targets has been this technocratic liberal elite that has been essentially wending these fantasies around the world, and in, in which elites, they also include, often quite rightly, the media, the mainstream media.
2: You write our current disregard of non-economic motivations is even more surprising when we learn that less than a century ago, the Enlightenment's narrow rational program for individual happiness had already become the butt of ridicule and contempt, as the Austrian modernist writer Robert Musil observed in 1922. Indeed, the pioneering works of sociology and psychology, as well as modernist art and literature of the early 20th century, were defined in part by their insistence that there is more to human beings than rational egoism. Competition and acquisition more to society than a contract between logically calculating and autonomous individuals and more to politics than impersonal technocrats devising hyper-rational schemes of progress with the help of polls, surveys, statistics, mathematical models and technology. But why does that kind of unshackling us from the chains of quantification Why does that lead to a rise of the far right? Why doesn't standing up to this quantification of humanity lead to a rise of the left, the left that has been critical of the market for all these years that the right seemingly has been supporting?
3: Well, the left has to formulate, reformulate its program. Um, It has to emerge, essentially, from under this umbrella of a softer form of neoliberalism where it has been standing for, for so long, And basically, it has to stress these qualities that have been scandalously ignored all these decades, leaving human beings so vulnerable, so vulnerable to demagogues. Uh, You know, what are demagogues offering them? After all, they're offering them security. They're offering them stability. They're offering them identity. They're offering them solidarity. They're offering them fraternity. These are traditionally left projects. Uh, The left has to understand that if it doesn't do the hard work, the right is always going to benefit, the far right in particular. And this is what we are, this is what we are seeing today, that the left simply failed to understand uh, whatever there is left of the left. It simply failed to understand that these imperatives, these ideas are important. And uh, the far right has very successfully hijacked them. If you look at their agenda, if you look, even look at Donald Trump's agenda, there's, there's, there's all kinds of progressivist ideas there. If you see Marie Le Pen's agenda, You know, she's the one who's offering the working classes a lot more than the traditional left in France has offered for decades now. So you see this extraordinary irony of the far right essentially appropriating all kinds of uh, 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 left notions today.
2: One last question for you, Pankaj. We have been speaking with award-winning writer Pankaj Mishra. He is the author of Age of Anger, A History of the Present. His latest book prior to Age of Anger is 2013's From the Ruins of Empire, The Revolt Against the West, and The Remaking of Asia. As we do with all of our guests, Pankaj, our final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer or our audience will hate your response. You quote the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada and leader of the official opposition from 2008 until 2011, Michael Ignatiev, writing, uh, Enlightenment, humanism and rationalism can no longer adequately explain the world we're living in. A year ago, we spoke with Deirdre Reber, author of Coming to Our Senses, Affect, and an Order of Things for Global Culture, wherein Deirdre argues we have left an age of reason for an age of affect, affect an age of feeling. How effective is liberalism is the idea that you should be able to offer a better case for your point of view and win your argument through logic and reason and debate how much is uh, how effective is that kind of liberalism in an age when feeling trumps reason?
3: Well, I think uh, liberalism will just have to work much much harder than it has. It has depended too much on extremely vulgar and simple ideas about the human being as being motivated by economic self interest, um, and I think it really now has to take into account a whole range of human experiences a whole range of human aims and goals if it has to remain if it if it if it wishes to remain uh, relevant politically relevant in in the years to come um it's because it systematically neglected these very important aspects of the human experience is 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 and 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 basically blended into neoliberalism which has been the dominant global ideology since the end of the cold war that's one reason why we are in this mess right now so in order to get out of this mess liberalism would have to reinvent itself and it has done so in the past uh, unfortunately it has done so after a lot of catastrophes such as such as the second world war and i i i just hope that we don't have to level large parts of the world into the ground before liberalism makes a comeback, uh, that it would be able to learn from this eruption of the far right around the world and acknowledge that the far right emerges from the failures of liberalism, that liberalism is complicit in the emergence of the far right. I think it has to acknowledge that. Only then can it really begin to reform itself, reinvent itself.
2: In, con- in Pankaj, let me just stress to our listening audience that if you want to understand that the age that we are living in, if you want to understand what happened with Brexit, if you want to understand what happened with the election in November, you must read Age of Anger, A History of the Present. We've ta- had a lot of people on the show who have been examining what was happening in the run-up to uh, Trump's election as president. We've been talking to people since the election has happened, and we've talked about this age of fear. We've talked about this age of resentment. But it, this Age of Anger kind of brings it all together into one kind of unifying theory. And it really is fascinating. Go out and buy award-winning writer Pankaj Mishra's book, Age of Anger, A History of the Present. It really is a fascinating book. It
4: creeps all over you like a dull ache.
5: Think of all the things your hands can
6: make. It the ground
7: Like clothes, The change in your face When anger
5: Integration in Germany The integration of migrants is relatively successful in Germany. There was never before a time in German history when integration was as successful as it is today. Integration policy has clearly improved The opportunities for minorities to participate in society are much better than even 20 or 50 years ago. Regardless of whether we focus on labor market, educational system, living conditions or the opportunities for political participation. All of that is better than 10, 20 or 30 years ago. But when you take a look at people's perceptions, when you examine the public discourse you can see that the assessment and evaluation of people concerning integration processes is exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite, and this difference between measurable integration uh, on the one side and the perceived integration on the other side seems to be crucial. If we want to understand the counter-movements, we have to understand the perception of integration in general and the difference between measurable and perceived integration in particular. I will point out that difference in the following four areas. First, um, integration policy, then integration processes and their effects. Third, the relationship between integration and racism. And the last point, the perceived discrimination from the perspective of minorities. And in any case, I will talk about expectations we have and differences we make. So, point one, integration policy. Of course, Germany made many mistakes in the past concerning integration. After World War II, labor was needed to build up the economy. Starting in the 1950s, labor migrants came from throughout the entire Mediterranean region, and these labor recruits were to be uneducated and have no ambitions because they were to focus solely on their given jobs. They were to work hard, but they were not supposed to stay permanently in Germany and they were definitely not supposed to expect that they would really belong to German society one day. They were referred to as Gastarbeiter, guest workers. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know any culture in which people make their guests work. <laughs> And that's, it's not usual, it's not common in Germany. Moreover, these guests in Germany were expected to do very hard manual labor. Very hard manual labor. So one could say they were not really full-fledged guests. They were only guests with regard to their not belonging. Well, the term Gastarbeiter itself makes clear how ill-defined integration policy was in that period, from the 1950s till the 1980s. There was no integration policy. And why should the integration of the Gastarbeiter be supported anyway? They were supposed to remain guests. That was the deal from both sides. But in reality, many stayed and are here to this day. And they received no language courses, no training, no further education. And for a long time, the the children of these guest workers were placed in school classes separate from German children's classes for a long period. It was also very difficult to gain citizenship. It was nearly impossible. Everything which we currently refer to as integration policy did not exist. So that's why we started on a very low level, but no wonder we have still have problems today, and in truth, most of these problems can be traced to the mistakes of the past, to the integration policy deficits of that time. Today, it is much better. For example, even refugees can expect language classes, labor market integration, an apartment, education, and training. Refugee children enter in regular classes, and the result is extraordinary. Today, an average adult Syrian refugee who came to Germany in 2015 already speaks better German than many guest workers who have lived in Germany for more than 50 years. In the 1960s and 1970s, I would have given German integration policy a score of 2 on a scale from 1 to 10. Today, I would give German integration policy a score of 7 out of 10. That is, of course, much better. But one thing we have to consider is, in the 1970s, integration policy was not seen as important. Integration was a foreign word, largely unknown in word and meaning. Today, integration policy is seen as the most important issue in domestic policy. And the expectations have risen considerably faster than the real improvements. And for an area of policy which has finally become the most important one, a score of seven points out of ten is apparently no longer enough. We are Germany. Seven points. That's not enough. (laughs) The problem though is not the situation itself, but rather the discrepancy between expectations and reality. We are talking about a relationship. The expectations rise faster than the reality can deliver. And while real conditions improve, expectations are rising even more quickly, so nobody is really noticing the improvements. What exactly do we expect the result of successful integration to be?
7: Germany's approach to accommodating migrants has also had a worldwide impact. It's won admiration from champions of open societies and abhorrence from those who oppose them. But it's possible that violent disagreements about the whole migrant question stem from a very basic misapprehension.
5: I believe we completely have the wrong idea about what integration is supposed to lead to. There are constant disputes over the definition of integration. There are different concepts, different terms. So we don't only discuss integration, but also inclusion, diversity, participation, equal opportunities, and so on. These terms focus different phenomena and processes, but they all have one same effect. And we don't pay enough attention to this common effect. When integration or inclusion or equal opportunities are successfully implemented they do not lead to a society which is more harmonious or free from conflict on the contrary the central effect of successful integration is actually a higher potential for conflicts it's
7: at this point that aladdin sets into play the central metaphor of his talk the dinner table imagine a dinner table where people from mainstream society have been seated for years the door suddenly opens and newcomers join them. It's precisely this kind of scenario that much of the world is now confronting.
5: More people are sitting at the table and they all want a piece of the pie. More people are sitting at the table and want a piece of a pie. How is this supposed to lead to fewer conflicts? This idea is either naive and romantic Multicultural optimism, or it is hegemonic in the sense of expecting minorities to assimilate. Reality, however, looks different. I always describe the general integration process like this the first generation, migrants, usually sit on the floor while the established citizens sit at the table. At this stage, the migrants are happy just to be there. They don't raise their voice, they're modest. But the second generation, sits at the table and they want a piece of the pie. This is how successful integration leads to higher potential for conflict. The third generation, the grandchildren of the migrants, don't just want a piece of a pie. They want also to have a say in what is ordered. Which pie is coming to the table next? And the potential for conflicts continues to grow in the third generation because the next step is to decide which recipe is used, the recipe of society. That is indeed what open societies promise, to have a say and to participate. And since a liberal and open immigration country has a new first generation every year, as well as a new second generation every year, as well as a new third generation every year, the situation continues to grow complexity. It will remain full of conflicts. At least the potential for conflicts increases. And that is new in all Western countries because openness and participation for all people and real integration for all people is new. It's relatively new. So what kind of conflicts am I talking about? First, conflicts of interest. Well-integrated people express their interests and needs actively and offensive. They organize themselves and work to realize their goals. Second, the resource conflicts. The competition increases in the jobs market, in the educational system, in the housing market, and so on. The third conflicts are conflicts in everyday life. The foreignness starts being seen as more problematic because we see the foreignness. Everywhere, in all sectors, in all positions, even in the media. If integration is successful, they are everywhere. One example which has been a focus of conflict in Germany as well as almost every other Western country is the headscarf, the Muslim headscarf. When I went to school in the 1980s and 1990s, I saw many headscarf-clad women entering and leaving my school every day, but nobody cared. Nobody cared about it, it was okay, But these women were badly integrated, they were not German citizens, spoke hardly any German. It was seen as okay, because these were just cleaning ladies. It wasn't okay anymore when the headscarf-clad women started becoming teachers, educating German children. These conditions made the headscarf into a problem. And I don't want to start a discussion right now about teachers with headscarves. What's relevant to me in this context is that this conflict arose only because the integration process and the participation had been successful. Integration leads to conflicts which didn't exist before and which would not exist at all if no integration had taken place. Integration changes a society Unsuccessful integration, disintegration, leads to deviance, social problems, crime, of course. But successful integration leads to fundamental change and to conflicts.
8: Bannon is sometimes referred to as Svengali. Svengali was the bad guy in an 1898 novel, uh, Trilby. Uh, by George de Murier, and uh, you know he hypnotized this young woman and took advantage of her for years and years. Wouldn't a better analogy be uh, Rasputin, who you know think, was? Yeah, I think I, I think it would be.
9: Yeah, the, the Trump uh, Bannon is guy whispering in Trump's ear, and I think a lot of people don't know that the, you know Bannon isn't a guy who suddenly came on the scene of in August 2016 when he took over the campaign. He has known Trump. And been whispering in his ear about politics since 2010, when they first met at Trump Tower, when Bannon was uh, this conservative filmmaker, a Breitbart news guy. And I don't think that Bannon thought that Trump was going to run for president then. But Bannon, being slightly crazed and and a fun-loving kind of guy, thought it was a lark to go up to Trump Tower and talk to Trump. But the two of them really connected. They have a lot of a lot of similarities. Uh, they both went to. Military schools they were both uh, business guys, deal makers, they both had a background in the entertainment industry, and they both had a lot of anger in a chip on their shoulder and I think that kind of forged the connection and made Trump willing uh, to listen and to embrace bannon 's hard right populist politics, especially the issue of immigration, which is what I think Bannon really brought to trump
8: hmm. so uh, and and he brought immigration not in a not in a uh, yeah. what's best for the economy or what's best for the nation, but rather a, oh, my God, the brown people are coming away.
9: Didn't he? he brought a virulently anti-immigrant sentiment, both uh, anti-undocumented immigrant and anti-legal immigrant. Uh, and, and I think Bannon, who, who had done, he produced a film in 2006 called Border Wars, where you know, he was down on the U.S.-Mexico border. I think Bannon understood the visceral political power that the issue of uh, illegal immigration has with a lot of conservatives and I think he saw that that viewpoint wasn't really being represented in the mainstream Republican establishment and he coached Trump to um, go right after, demonize really uh, anybody with brown skin who was trying to get into the United States and of course Trump from the very get-go when he came down the elevator in Trump Tower, what was the what was the first thing he said in his rambling election speech? He he called Mexicans rapists and and drug drug dealers. That was pure uncut Steve Bannon.
8: So, uh, what should we learn from this? I mean, to what extent has has Trump completely absorbed this? And what does it mean for the future of our republic? What does it mean for the future of of, of policy?
9: Well, I think. For the future of policy under trump it's very disconcerting because unlike a health care bill, uh, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump can have and already having a profound effect on how our immigration laws uh, are enforced. They can do that without having to pass legislation through congress as they as they do to. Right. Unwind the Affordable Care Act,
8: right? And they're doing this right across the regulatory board, by the way. You know, from the hey, Interior hey, Department hey, to hey, FDA. Exactly.
9: I don't, th- but I don't think that, I don't think it's happening anywhere with more force uh, than it is on immigration, uh, because Bannon told me during the transition, he said, "You watch, I am going to employ the shock and awe strategy, and the very first thing we're going to do is go after uh, immigration laws, immigration enforcement." He famously had the executive order uh, banning immigrants from seven Muslim majority nations that was held up by the courts but caused these nationwide protests Bannon told me that was intentional I wanted people out there getting angry because I think that Americans really don't welcome immigrants really don't want these people here and if they see Donald Trump um, carrying out his promises uh, to to deport to crack down all these sorts of things then they are going to understand that we in the Trump administration are carrying out our promises, and so these protests, far from being a bad thing, are really a good thing, because people notice them, and they see that Trump is doing what he says.
4: Protest against injustice, state terror, on the streets of the world for the dead. Right over wrong Now it's time to hit the streets Back up those words you sung. Because our voices alone This time we'll not get it
8: done there's a brand new team in charge of the White
0: House, a brand new staff to keep the wheels President
8: turning. Trump wakes up with a busy day ahead. And this is just the beginning
3: of what is going to be a very busy day for Donald Trump.
10: Campaign advisor David Urban. This
8: president came to this town with a mindset after the election, he was going to shake things up. He was going to
10: move at a much more rapid pace and shake the government up.
7: We're also expecting him to
10: head to the Pentagon. On his seventh day in office, President Donald Trump headed to the Pentagon. It was time for action. Former Breitbart editor-at-large Ben Shapiro. I do think that they wanted to have a flurry of activity at the beginning to demonstrate that, that Trump is what he said he was. He's not going to wait. He's not going to take his time. He knows what to do, and he's going to fix everything. He's going to set the world right immediately. Opportunity for him to meet with his secretary of defense, James Mattis. It was the first time the new president had White been to the Pentagon.
11: Not offering up details, but President Trump... Is expected to be
5: become... the president is asking the military to use it. At
10: Trump's side is chief strategist Stephen Bannon. Washington Post reporter Robert Costa. Trump has told me multiple times that he
0: actually loves to fight. In Bannon, he saw someone who was just like him, someone who
8: loved to fight.
10: Bannon had engineered a sweeping executive order aimed at fulfilling a campaign promise to restrict Muslims from entering the United States.
0: New York Times reporter Peter Baker. That's Steve Bannon's idea, is to just throw everybody else off balance, knock them back before they have a chance to resist.
10: Until this moment, the order's details had been a well-kept secret in Washington, even among Trump's own team. Business Week reporter Joshua Green. They wanted to rush this thing through
11: and get it out there, uh, and essentially take a shock and awe approach to changing immigration policy.
0: Defense Secretary Mattis. He knew very late in the process that this is what was going to be done during this visit.
11: Bannon didn't want other agencies to have a chance to see what was in this executive order and say, whoa, whoa, wait wait a minute, slow down. This might not be something we want to do.
0: John Kelly is the new Secretary of Homeland Security, a retired four-star general. He's on the phone being briefed on a helicopter while they're doing this announcement.
1: Protection of the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States.
10: Big stuff. Advisor David Urban.
8: The president's first and most important responsibility to the American people is to keep the homeland safe. And uh, and so I think that that's what the president was shooting for there, is to is to protect the homeland.
10: Bannon and the new president had sent a message. Change had come. Robert Costa.
2: That was in the eyes of Bannon the way to rupture the establishment. They knew it was going to be disruptive. They wanted the disruption. Bannon sees disruption as power.
7: A scene of outrage at JFK airport in New York. Protests all across the country,
8: the reaction from around the world after the president signed his executive order.
0: They knew that the protests would come. They knew the media would erupt. It's what they wanted. Swift
2: reaction from around the country.
9: Now protests, outrage, and backlash from President
10: Joshua Green. One
11: senior Trump official said the fact that it came out on a Friday afternoon with no warning was no accident because Bannon knew that people who were opposed to this policy would be enraged and most of them would have Saturday and Sunday off from work so they could get out there and they could protest and they could get angry. And TV cameras would come and film these protests. It would be all over the news.
2: Seattle police actually dispersed some crowds with pepper spray. It was a and
11: it would send the message to Trump's voters that Trump was keeping the promises that he made on the campaign trail.
10: in It had been a Steve Bannon production. Former Breitbart spokesman Kurt Bardella. Bannon thinks that this is great. We're killing it. We're winning. We're doing
8: everything that we said we would. We are beating the, down uh, the establishment and the liberals into submission. We are literally making America great again.
6: This American carnage stops
2: right here and stops right now. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. The
7: time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action.
10: A strategist, a revolutionary, a provocateur, Steve Bannon helped create a movement intent on transforming the country. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Benjamin. But Bannon himself rarely talks publicly about the world view at the heart of his politics.
4: Speaking uh, from Los Angeles today, right across the street from our, our headquarters in Los Angeles.
10: One exception, this video at a Vatican conference less than three years before he entered the White House. Atlantic reporter, Yuri Friedman. He comes onto the screen. He's via Skype. It's this grainy video image. And he gives this speech where he talks about how
5: Islam is a threat to Judeo-Christian
10: civilization.
5: I believe the world,
8: and particularly the, the Judeo-Christian West, uh, is in a crisis.
10: The former Breitbart editor-at-large Ben Shapiro. The threat that Bannon sees post-9-11 of the Judeo-Christian West is that radical Islamic theology uh, is metastasizing into more mainstream Islamic communities. We're at the very beginning stages
4: of a very brutal and bloody conflict. We are in an outright war against jihadist islam islamic fascism and this war is is i think metastasizing almost
8: far quicker than governments can can can, uh, can can handle it
10: bannon describes himself as a combatant in what he believes is an epic war washington post reporter mark fisher Steve Bannon sees America's dilemma at this stage
2: in its history as really part of a civilizational battle uh, between uh, the forces of the West and faith and democracy versus that of Islam and terrorism. And he has uh, kind of reduced all of the conflicts of modern society to that essential face-off between the terrorists and the Americans.
7: I started my conversation with Pankaj Mishra by asking him when he first began noticing what he calls the global civil war It's something you noticed first in in twenty fourteen, and I want to know what exactly sparked your interest in that war.
1: Well, I think you know the eruption of animosities, political animosities not only between parties mainstream political parties but within families uh, for instance in india and and we saw this again uh, when trump was was elected uh, any number of people um, i met in in the united states last uh, couple of weeks uh, who confessed to having uh, fought running battles with family members who voted for trump and and this was likewise a situation for many many people in india who who were flabbergasted by the spectacle of um, people in their own families voting for a man who they thought quite rightly ought to be serving a long prison sentence. And here he was being elected the prime minister of of, um, of, of India uh, by you know, a, a large margin. So I think the triumph of a demagogue in this instance and you know he he had a long political record which was um, pretty disgraceful and you know he had been written off uh, many times and here he was making this big comeback causing deep divisions in Indian in in Indian society at large with his rhetoric and then of course we've seen in the last 3 years uh, those divisions deepen so That was my first experience, at least the first uh, very intimate experience of this, what I call um, a global civil war where people aspiring for a better life or feeling themselves blocked, feeling their social mobility blocked, have started to make very unwise political choices and uh, therefore alienating a lot of people around them. And also, in a way, condemning their societies, the societies in which they live, to a kind of low-intensity conflict, uh, which may last for, for, for several years. You know, of course, we know that the global civil war manifests itself in extremely violent forms, too, in many countries around the world. But what we have seen in many democracies today is, uh, the eruption, the emergence of, um, very, very, uh, um, you know, strong um,
7: polarities and, 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 and divisions. A lot has happened since that 2014 election in India. I mean, since then, we've had the Brexit vote uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, we've had Donald Trump, and uh, we continually read reports about what's going on in the Middle East with ISIS. People... Uh, around the world, and politicians are among those people sometimes, see the, the terror terrorist threat right now, this sort of radical Islamist threat as the West's biggest issue, the biggest problem we're facing. But you reject that. Why?
1: Well, I think, you know, we are now finding out with the eruption of far-right fanaticism in the very heart of the modern West that fundamentalism, extremism, political uh, fanaticism of this kind is simply not unique to Muslim societies or countries in Asia and Africa. And this is you know, partly what my book also uh, illuminates, that uh, these movements of violence fueled by militant disaffection have erupted over and over again in Europe. In fact, that is where we first witnessed terrorism. And they have, you know, continually emerged as a result of various economic crises in, you know, as, as a consequence of, um, you know, certain factors. When they come together, you will have a small minority of people resorting to, to violence. And it has happened, you know, as, as, as recently as the 1970s and, 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 and 1980s in, in, in Western Europe. So terrorism, or using terrorism as a tactic, it's certainly not unique to Muslim societies. We have also seen it in, in India. We've seen it in Thailand. I've just returned from Burma, where Buddhist monks have resorted to ethnic cleansing and to the kind of violence that, you know, is is, is certainly not sanctioned in any Buddhist texts that I at least know of. So I think we made a catastrophic mistake after nine eleven. When we located the source of militant violence in Islam and tried to identify a particular community that was breeding this poison of terrorism, we just completely ignored this very long history in which people of all religious, racial, ethnic, national backgrounds had resorted to terrorism. So I think you know in many ways we are living with the consequences today of that mistake we made soon after 9/11 in 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 that you know bigotry of the kind that was unleashed back then is now being institutionalized in government policy by all kinds of far right demagogues who seized upon this issue and turned the muslim community in in uh, Europe and America as 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 basically a scapegoat, the same fate that many uh, Jews suffered in the late 19th century during a time of economic crisis, when they were singled out as the as 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 the source of suffering for you know all the masses who were being victimized by these global flows of labor and capital back then.
7: It seems to be an issue or a problem that is uh, much more widespread than people are willing to think. Uh, if not almost a universal problem.
1: It really is. I mean, I think, you know, scapegoating is an ancient practice. And it seems like no matter how secular or rational or modern we might think ourselves to be, certain human traits or certain pathologies of human societies are never very far behind us. And, and, and scapegoating is, is clearly, clearly one of them.
7: Can you help us see the connection then between the kind of people you're talking about, the cultural nationalism that was, was part of a, Italian fascism a hundred years ago, and the kind of chauvinism we're now seeing in Donald Trump's America or, or beyond that in Islamist or Buddhist or Hindu nationalists anywhere in the globe?
1: So, you know, I think the, the connection between them is not that they're all alike, which will be a very silly and shallow thing to say. But that one kind of disaffection in a particular context leads to anarchist violence, it leads to terrorism, it leads to young people embracing um, essentially extreme violence as a way of being in the world. The other kind of disaffection makes people identify scapegoats, various imaginary culprits for their suffering, it makes them join cultist organizations extreme uh, of, a, of a kind of extremist persuasion uh, what is important is to keep in focus the particular political conditions, the economic crisis uh, from which these pathologies emerge.
6: Other the times, said Thomas Paine, that try men's souls. And they're trying ours now. This is a fateful moment in the history of the West. We've seen divisive elections and divided societies. We've seen a growth of extremism in politics and religion. All of it fueled by anxiety, uncertainty and fear of a world that's changing almost faster than we can bear, and the sure knowledge that it's going to change faster still. I have a friend in Washington. I asked him, what was it like being in America during the recent presidential election? He said to me, well, it was like the man sitting on the deck of the Titanic with a glass of whiskey in his hand. And he's saying, I know I asked for ice, (laughs) but this is ridiculous. So is there something we can do, each of us, to be able to face the future without fear? I think there is, and one way into it is to see that perhaps the most simple way into a culture and into an age is to ask what do people worship? People have worshipped so many different things the sun, the stars, the storm some people worship many gods some one, some none in the 19th and 20th centuries people worshipped the nation, the Aryan race the communist state what do we worship? I think future anthropologists will take a look at the books we read On self-help, self-realization, self-esteem. They'll look at the way we talk about morality as being true to oneself. The way we talk about politics as a matter of individual rights. And they'll look at this wonderful new religious ritual we have created. You know the one? Called the selfie. And I think they'll conclude that what we worship in our time is the self the me, the I. And this is great. It's liberating, it's empowering, it's wonderful. But don't forget that biologically we're social animals. We spent most of our evolutionary history in small groups. We need those face-to-face interactions where we learn the choreography of altruism and where we create those spiritual goods like friendship and trust and loyalty and love that redeem our solitude. When we have too much of the I and too little of the we, we can find ourselves vulnerable, fearful, and alone. It was no accident that Sherry Turkle of MIT called the book she wrote on the impact of social media Alone Together. So I think the simplest way of safeguarding the future you is to strengthen the future us in three dimensions. The us of relationship, the us of identity, and the us of responsibility. So let me first take the us of relationship. And here, forgive me if I get personal. Once upon a time, a very long time ago, I was a 20-year-old undergraduate studying philosophy. I was into Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and Sartre and Camus. I was full of ontological uncertainty and existential angst. It was terrific. (laughs) I was self-obsessed and thoroughly unpleasant to know. Until one day I saw across the courtyard a girl who was everything that I wasn't. She radiated sunshine. She emanated joy I found out her name was Elaine we met, we talked, we married and 47 years, 3 children and 8 grandchildren later I can safely say was the best decision I ever took in my life because it's the people not like us that make us grow and that is why I think we have to do just that The trouble with Google filters, Facebook friends, and reading the news by narrowcasting rather than broadcasting means that we're surrounded almost entirely by people like us, whose views, whose opinions, whose prejudices even are just like ours. And Cass Sunstein of Harvard has shown that if we surround ourselves with people with the same views as us, we get more extreme. I think we need to renew those face-to-face encounters with the people not like us. I think we need to do that in order to realize that we can disagree strongly and yet still stay friends. It's in those face-to-face encounters that we discover that the people not like us are just people like us. And actually, every time we hold out the hand of friendship. Is what somebody not like us, whose class or creed or color are different from ours. We heal one of the fractures of our wounded world. That is the us of relationship. Second is the us of identity. Let me give you a thought experiment. Have you been to Washington? Have you seen the memorials? Absolutely fascinating. There's the Lincoln Memorial. Gettysburg Address on one side, second inaugural on the other. You go to the Jefferson Memorial, screeds of text. Martin Luther King Memorial, more than a dozen quotes from his speeches. I didn't realize in America you read memorials. Now go to the equivalent in London in Parliament Square and you will see that the monument to David Lloyd George contains three words. David. Lloyd. George. (laughs) Nelson Mandela gets two, Churchill gets just one, Churchill. (laughs) Why the difference? I'll tell you why the difference, because America was from the outset a nation of wave after wave of immigrants, so it had to create an identity, which it did by telling a story which you learnt at school, you read on memorials, and you heard repeated in presidential inaugural addresses. Britain until recently wasn't a nation of immigrants, so it could take identity for granted. The trouble is now The two things have happened which shouldn't have happened together. The first thing is, in the West, we've stopped telling the story of who we are and why, even in America. And at the same time, immigration is higher than it's ever been before. So... When you tell the story and your identity is strong, you can welcome the stranger. But when you stop telling the story, your identity gets weak and you feel threatened by the stranger. And that's bad. I tell you, Jews have been... Scattered and dispersed and exiled for 2,000 years. We never lost our identity. Why? Because at least once a year on the festival of Passover, we told our story and we taught it to our children and we ate the unleavened bread of affliction and tasted the bitter herbs of slavery. So we never lost our identity. I think collectively we've got to get back to telling our story, who we are, where we came from, what ideals by which we live. And if that happens... We will become strong enough to welcome the stranger and say, come, and share our lives, share our stories, share our aspirations and dreams. That is the us of identity. And finally, the us of responsibility. Do you know something? My favorite phrase in all of politics, very American phrase, is we the people. Why we the people? Because it says that we all share collective responsibility for our collective future, and that's how things really are and should be. Have you noticed how magical thinking has taken over our politics? So we say, all you've got to do is elect this strong leader, and he or she will solve all our problems for us. Believe me, that is magical thinking. And then we get the extremes, the far right, the far left, the extreme religious and the extreme anti-religious, the far right dreaming of a golden age that never was, the far left dreaming of a utopia that never will be, and the religious and anti-religious equally convinced That all it takes is God, or the absence of God, to save us from ourselves. That too is magical thinking. Because the only people who will save us from ourselves is we, the people. All of us together. And when we do that, and when we move from the politics of me to the politics of all of us together... We rediscover those beautiful, counter-intuitive truths. That a nation is strong when it cares for the weak. That it becomes rich when it cares for the poor. It becomes invulnerable when it cares about the vulnerable. That is what makes great nations. So here is my simple suggestion, it might just change your life and it might just help to begin to change the world. Do a search and replace operation on the text of your mind. And wherever you encounter the word self, substitute the word other. So instead of self-help, other help, instead of self-esteem, other esteem. And if you do that, you will begin to feel the power of what, for me, is one of the most moving sentences in all of religious literature. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We can face any future without fear so long as we know, we will not face it alone. So, for the sake of the future you, together, let us strengthen the future us.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with This Is Hell speaking with Pankaj Mishra about his book, Age of Anger. Ideas from the CBC looked at a new way of seeing conflict as an inherent part of successfully integrating societies rather than something to be feared and avoided at all costs. Tom Hartman spoke with Joshua Green about the strategic harnessing of anger by Bannon and Trump, as best demonstrated by the Muslim ban. PBS Frontline gave us a documentary insight into the Muslim ban, as well as Bannon's underlying philosophy. Next, there was another segment from CBC's Ideas, also speaking with Pankaj Mishra, about globalized anger and the scapegoats we use to misplace that anger. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs about how to face the future with without fear, together. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And although I do have a voicemail to play for you today, I'm going to do that in a few minutes and tell you a story first. This is the story that came to my mind today while putting this episode together. Now, for long-time listeners, you may recall that before this podcast inexplicably became my job, the work I was doing way back in the day was work at a climate change nonprofit organization and all at the beginning of my time there way back in 2007 i was i was approached by the executive director and he was like hey listen you produce these podcasts right so obviously you can edit audio do you think you could do that but with video and i said no i don't think so and he said okay well try anyway we want to buy you a camera and you know a computer and the software you need. and we want to start producing videos based on our activism that we do and we want to put them on YouTube and start getting the message out about all the great work we're doing in a you know nice nicely produced packaged sort of way using video. And I thought, well, shit, I guess I don't know how to do that, but I'll learn. And in the very first, event that I filmed and the, and the first video that I put together, we were protesting the Bush administration at the State Department. Uh, remember, this is 2007, and he had put together, after you know years of basically denying the existence of climate change, he was putting together this sort of fake international meeting to discuss climate change and totally not do anything about it. And so a bunch of organizations came together, and we were all protesting at the State Department at once. And I was filming and produced this video. It was a two-day action. First, there was civil disobedience the first day. A bunch of people were arrested. And then the second day, there was just a sort of normal rally with marching and speeches and cheering and all of that sort of thing. And as we were preparing for the speeches... Someone said that the plan was, you know, one of the speakers, sort of the keynote speaker on that second day was going to be Van Jones. And I had never heard of this person before. He went on to become the Obama administration green job czar and has been involved in lots of different organizations. He's on CNN. He's a commentator. He does all kinds of things. He's just sort of a progressive renaissance man. And. Over the years I've had plenty of problems with things he's said. He's a he's a quirky, strange, complicated dude, so he says lots of great things, and then every once in a while a kind of sort of thing. But this very first time I met him, uh, he he was introduced to me before you know, before the event, before I met him, he was introduced to me because he was described as the keynote speaker, and the plan was To bring on Van Jones, and he's going to just knock the ball out of the park, home run speech like he always does, because that is what he's known for. He is excellent at giving speeches, and he said something incredibly powerful during this speech, and I I put it in the video. I'm going to play it for you in a second, and this phrase has been sticking in my head for a full decade, and it came very much to mind today because... What today's episode is all about is this globalized, borderless anger, frustration with the status quo, and what almost no one is talking about is that all of this is being exacerbated by climate change. Every frustration about neoliberal politics or globalization or or refugees, or immigrants, or any of these things that people find themselves being frustrated about, what is not being talked about is the part that climate change plays in making all of these situations worse, making everyone's anger more heightened And it will only continue to do this as sea levels rise, and more people are displaced, and there are more famines and more floods, and people have to move to survive more and more and more uh, heat waves and, and droughts, and all of these things will cause wars and conflict as they have already begun to do. So as I say, Van Jones was one speaker of many at this particular event.
4: No, George Bush, you don't get a cookie for acknowledging a problem that the whole world now acknowledges.
0: And keep in mind, this is less than two years after Hurricane Katrina, a very intersectional, economic, climate, human, racist disaster. And Van Jones begins using this metaphor.
4: If somebody is struggling, let them sink or swim. Let them sink or swim. And you cut on TV two years ago, and you saw... People thinking.
0: And when he brings this metaphor to its conclusion, he says the words that have been ringing in my head for the last 10 years. And these words are my response to all of the elements displayed in today's episode. It's my response to the problems we have with immigration and refugees. It's my response to every issue that we need to deal with in the face of climate change.
4: We're living in a post Katrina. Age, You and I and this whole movement have to say with one voice, we reject any philosophy, any economic policy, any political worldview that says, let people sink or swim in an age of floods. We reject it. We reject it. We reject it.